Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Chris Thomas. We're at Celestial Hill in, our, in uh, McMinnville. It's August 21st, 2023. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Yeah, it's a great morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday in the Smoky Valley today. Uh, first question, why wine? Uh, why, why wine? Wine was, um, wine was definitely not part of the original plan. It um, became, um, became an, an, a necessity, then it became an interest, then it became a hobby, then it became a passion, and then it became, you know, that, that, that living your best life um, in, in kind of that, that order. Uh, I'm, I say it became a necessity because it was in the mid nineties, um, 1995 to be exact. And we were, Melissa and I had, uh, we started really quite modestly and quite frankly, didn't have any money and right. Got married young out of school and, uh, got a job down in, 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 in Texas and the company sent us immediately over to Europe. So we had one son at the time, no money, living modestly. And in 1995 in downtown Brussels, it was French only. And um, we quickly learned that while we were trying to save money and order tap water, (laughs) um, that was not going to suffice. You needed to be ordering either bottled water which we found out was more expensive than table wine. So we said, let's, this is the necessity. Hey, listen, we're do, we went in Rome, do as the locals do and order a carafe of table wine and save a little bit of money. The cool part was we learned um, how you can like enjoy a meal, enjoy people, enjoy wine. And wine was kind of the glue that brought everyone together. We weren't rushing. Um, and it really started to create the interest. After a couple of years, we moved back to the U.S. and kept that interest going. And then that, <clears throat> that interest um, got further developed and turned into a real hobby when 10 years later, we got sent back to Europe. And this time, um, we had a little bit of money to really start to explore wine and spent a lot of time traveling across Europe and f- just fell in love with Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Fell in love with Pinot, Chardonnay, um, fell in love with the farmers of Burgundy, um, loved walking into a barn versus a chateau that just felt more like Melissa and I, and um, hanging out with a farmer who's putting his heart and soul into growing the grapes and making the wine in the vineyard. And um, yeah, and then it just developed from there. and. We thought maybe we'd get the opportunity someday to do something big, and well, this is as big as, as it gets for us. So we're we're super excited to be here, and and uh, now it is our living our best lives. All right, I'm gonna come back and catch up on some of that, but let's talk about kind of life before that. Where were you born and raised, and where did you and Melissa meet? All right, so we're both from upstate New York. So basically, upstate New York is a real general term for anything in New York State, except for New York City. So. Um, Upstate New York, specifically for Melissa, is Rochester, New York. And for me, it's Buffalo, New York. So yes, I'm a big Bills fan. And um, still still, still hoping for that ever-elusive Super Bowl. Um, we met in college, you know, so um, uh, mutual friends brought us together um, late, uh, I guess, my junior year of college. and. That was my first sales job because Melissa really didn't like me at first, but eventually I wore her out. And, um, you know, 32 years later, here we are after 32 years of marriage, I guess about 35 years in total now. And um, she's still stuck by me. I, I can't believe she has, but she has. And um, we got married a week after graduated. And um, since then, you know, we, <clears throat> I'm actually, I don't tell a lot of people this, so, um, but I'm actually a, I'm actually a CPA by trade. Oh no. So somehow I went from being an accountant to um, 
I didn't, I, I was I guess I wasn't a very good accountant because I got out of accounting pretty quick and moved into operations and sales and spent most of my career then in tech and was lucky. I got to travel around the, the world and see a lot and meet a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, which I think has actually translated into how we want the culture of Celestial Hill to feel, which is we're, we're very inclusive. Um, um, we want people to bring different thoughts, different ideas, different ways of life um, to Celestial Hill. And, you know, wine's kind of that cool thing that as soon as you find a, a friend in wine, you, you really have a friend regardless of where they're from, what they look like. Um, mm -hmm. Wine just is that, that cool common denominator that, that really brings people together. So yeah, after many years in tech, um, <clears throat> doing a bunch of different jobs, um, we finally said once the kids had moved out, we have three great kids, two in Texas, um, one in Austin, one in San Antonio, and then our youngest, Kendall Grace, she is in Nebraska doing her last year of nursing school. So if all goes well this year, I'm going to get my oldest, Ben, off the payroll. He's going to graduate from law school. And Kendall going to graduate from nursing school. I have two of them off the payroll. And Brady's already off the payroll. Thank you, Brady, because you've helped your mom and dad out for the last couple of years. So tell me about the, as, you were, as you were working in Texas, as you were traveling in Europe, as you were discovering wine, tell me about the kind of the path for you. Like you mentioned Burgundy as being kind of the eye opener for you. Before that, what was your, was, was wine something you did regularly? Was it something you were excited about? Did you learn a lot about it or was it just kind of, uh, you know, you, you, you drink it when you're in a restaurant? Well, it, it evolved, right? I mean, it, it, it definitely, growing up, there was no wine in the house. Um, so didn't know anything about wine really until the mid nineties when we were in Belgium the first time and started to understand it uh, and appreciate it. And then you, you investigate it. Right. And, and I think, you know, wine is one of those things that, um, you never stop learning. It's so big. Um, and there's so many nuances and I think that's, what's so awesome about it. Right? Like for those people who, who, who like to learn, um, my gosh, you can spend your life learning about all the different wines and, and nuances of wine. And, and I think we, we had that interest. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do feel like you limit yourself a little bit because eventually you feel like you kind of have to specialize. But to this day, we still love all wines. While my palate has changed, Melissa's palate has changed. You know, my cellar, my personal cellar is, is heavy on Bordeaux. And we don't drink a lot of Bordeaux anymore. You know, we prefer things a little bit lighter. Um, still drink the cabs. If I'm doing big steak, I'll still pull out a cab, um, which is great, or occasional Bordeaux. But, you know, it definitely evolved. And, and our use of wine, you, you, you touched on that until, you know, how often we would drink wine. You know, it was certainly dinners only. I think when we started, it was Friday nights only. We would go to this little bistro in Brussels. And then, um, <clears throat> And then we would explore a little bit more. And certainly, I, I do think wine should be approachable. It's unfortunate that making high quality wine is expensive. And so we do try to like keep, you know, some of our wines approachable for most people financially. Um, and then, you know, you, we would explore different types of wines and go from the, you know, finding the best wine stores and finding people that you liked at wine stores that could help educate you, right? Um, and who were, who were those people that would, that you were your go-to people to say, hey, Rich, you know, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> it's our anniversary this week and I'm looking for a cool bottle of wine. Here's what I can afford to spend. Can you help me out? And, and then getting a little bit of the story behind that wine. And I, I think that's part of really what we started to love. What, once you peel back the onion on certainly, you know, your, your smaller producers, there is a story behind every wine. Um, every wine is, is different. And you start to learn about the vintages and how it's made and um, the different parts of the different regions. And, um, you know, I think initially, you know, you start looking out for those, those value wines, you know, the, the Rhones, um, um, the Jugundas versus the Chateauneuf de Pops and, you know, that are similar wines, but maybe a better value. And I think, <clears throat> 
all of that was all part of the journey until, you know, now, I mean, um, if you can enjoy a wonderful glass of wine every day with dinner, why not, mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, we love to enjoy a glass of wine every night with dinner. So tell us about the, the decision to go from being drinkers of wine and enjoyers of wine to actually being in the industry. How, how did that come about? Well, it didn't end up the way we thought it would. Initially, after we came back from Europe the second time and we fell in love with Burgundy, I probably spent 10, 15 years studying French real estate, trying to figure out how I, we might be able to integrate as a part of our life, not as our full life, but as a part of our life, maybe something related to Burgundy slash wine. You know, we started, you know, working on our, our French language skills and, and, and learning about the different villages and, um, going over there and doing some trips and trying to figure out where what that might look like and um then it was you know after we heard about the 2012 vintage in willamette i think it was really the 2012 vintage that really started to put willamette increasingly on the global map of of wine regions we said let's check this out because we love pinot and chard and um we fell in love and uh, we're like, oh my gosh, like, um, you know, our French sucks and it's, it's harder to get to France. We love France. We love Burgundy. And, um, you know, I think we all uh, appreciate what the French winemakers and have all done to help, you know, friend the wine across the globe. Um, but, um, coming here, the food's great proximity to the ocean, the wine is awesome. And it, the biggest, when we started thinking about how maybe our, our vision for our future lives would, could change, Rich, it was the people here that made the biggest difference. Um, end of the day, you know, you could, you know, love wines, many places you can, you can, you can make, you know, some nice wine. But the winemakers and, and just Oregonians in general, um, we fell in love with the people. Uh, we fell in love with the lifestyle, the culture. Um, you know, coming from Texas and not paying any income tax, we're like, hey, do, we're gonna be paying a lot of extra money for these friends of ours here, you know? If we make some friends in Oregon, if someone actually wants to be our friend. And um, geez, we couldn't, you know, we, we, we're so excited to maybe make this happen. And, the people in Oregon are special and everybody talks about, you know, how making wine and the wine industry in Oregon is unique and people are collaborators. Um, and that is a hundred percent true. Now I'm sure there are obviously exceptions to every rule, but people have been awesome to us. Um, you know, whether it's been, you know, John Thomas and Amy Lee, whether, and, you know, giving us advice and helping us out with barrels, you know, whether it's, it's, it's been Anthony King over at the winemaker studio, who's just like, Chris, you know, how can I help you get started? And let's talk a little bit about what you, you might want to think about doing and prioritizing. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about different people and people have opened up their minds, their hearts, they've given their time and, um, I mean, it's, that, that part is really, really true. And so, you know, we've, we've been in this now for four years and my gosh, I wish I would have gotten here 20 years ago. Um, Cause I still like to think I'm 35, but I'm not. And um, it, you know, I think, you know, the sooner you can get here and do something like this, the better, but we got here as fast as we could. I uh, love it. And, um, yeah, just now we're just looking ahead. So after discovering Oregon, tell me about the point from that, that point of kind of coming out here, exploring, falling in love with it, to finding this space and starting your, starting your new project here. Yeah, it took us years, right? I think I've talked, I've talked to people who are now in Melissa's and, I, and, and my shoes who are doing some, trying to do something similar to what we did, coming from different careers, different parts of the country. Um, you don't necessarily have a lot of connections at the time into the valley when you're living somewhere else. Um, so obviously you can work with a real estate person and there's some great, you know, real estate people, um, big shout out to Matt Tackett, who he's fantastic, um, uh, to work with from a real estate perspective. And he did help us find our vineyard, but it took us years, Rich. Um, 
I think um, some people said, Chris, you'll know when you find the right property. And this property, Celestial Hill spoke to us. I mean, I'm not trying to be corny, but like after we looked at like, I don't know, many tens and tens, 20s, 50, probably 50 different properties uh, over years. When we came here, um, you could feel uh, a lot of positive energy. It felt right. Um, we loved the location. Um, being here in McMinnville, you know, which I think is still one of the underdeveloped components parts of Willamette Valley, um, it just felt like like this was the right place for us. It's the right size, you know. We wanted something. We wanted to live on the vineyard. We live here on the vineyard, and I wanted to be the guy who does walk the rows every day. And I am the guy who walks the rows every single day. This morning, I'll do it again tonight, and. That's really what we wanted, and, and it all depends upon what you want. This is probably not the right property for, for many other people, but um, we wanted, uh, wanted some established roots. You know, Vineyard was planted in 2002, and you know, even in a year of, of drought and heat like we're having, we haven't had rain since April here um, at, at, at the Vineyard. And you can look behind me and the vines are still nice and green and everything is dry farmed. And so, you know, we found a, a piece of property that speaks to us, that we love. Uh, we love the location. We love the four different vineyards and how it's set up. Um, and, you know, we've, again, feel truly, truly blessed to have found a vineyard with that is, um, we think, magical and making great wines. and makes us happy and I think the biggest thing about this and Richie and I were talking a little bit about this before we started the video right which is sharing the property we bought the property from Glenn and Suzanne Howard uh, who lives here in town um, they, they planted the vines they lived here they, they raised their family here you could feel the love and positive energy when we bought the property from them they're dear friends of ours today they come out to the property and we try to open up the property we kind of feel like we're stewards of the property. It's a beautiful piece of land with a beautiful view and a cool valley and with wonderful neighbors. And so we invite, you know, our Celestial Hill um, uh, members and our friends and family to come and enjoy the property, share the, share the property. Um, it's pretty cool. We have a one mile trail that connects the four vineyards. And so it creates a great opportunity to get out, explore the land, explore the terroir and see how the soils change and how the vines change, elevations change and how that impacts, um, you know, your wine. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because today, the lower part of the property, you know, it sits at about 350 feet, 375 feet at the lowest, um, you know, we're sitting at about 50% verasion, 60% verasion. But when you go up top where we sit about 700 feet, you know, we're, you know, sitting at about 20% verasion. And that's pretty cool when you're a customer, you can come out and you can see that and see how that elevation makes a difference, right? So once you found this place, tell me about uh, what were the kind of the first steps in the process? How did you, what did you need to know? What did you need to kind of understand to, to get your project started? Well, I think sometimes it's a little bit like, you know, for those of us who've, who've had kids and you ask yourself, like, you wait, what's the perfect time to have kids in your life? And the reality is you would never have kids if you waited for the perfect time. I think it's a little bit the same thing when, when you're going into something and, and buying a vineyard and, and starting a new label, making wine. I don't know if there's ever a perfect time. I think you have to like, you have to have a little bit of faith, take a little bit of risk. I think, you know, we jumped into it with both feet. Certainly many people go slower, um, source fruit, lease space, sell most of your fruit, don't use all your fruit. We didn't do any of those things. And we, we jumped into it with both feet, um, you know, and you know, we relied on a lot of people to help us. We did a ton of research before we came, right? The good news is, and I highly encourage people to do this, talk to a bunch of people. We talked to as many people as we possibly could, did a bunch of research online, great YouTube videos, you know. <clears throat> I mean, I knew how to prune via YouTube video, but I didn't really know how to prune until I sat down and went, went you know, through the, you know, the vineyard with Ryan Wilkinson, my vineyard manager, and said, okay, now let's talk about it. And here's all the different things that you see, you know, now by your fourth year, you're, you know, instead of, uh, you know, 
doing a vine a half hour, you can do a vine in, you know, 10 minutes. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, so I, I do think it's, you, it is big, it's complicated. I would tell people you gotta kinda gotta go. Uh, if, don't wait for the perfect time. Just, if you feel it's the right thing to do, you gotta go do it. But then talk to as many people as you can. There's so many wonderful resources out there. People are, are, are so willing to help that, you know, before you know it, you know, you didn't realize what you didn't know until you got into it, right? And then um, you learn those things. So as you were jumping, you mentioned kind of jumping in with both feet. What was your initial plan? What, what were you, what did you foresee Celestial Hill becoming? We did think we would go slower. I was still doing corporate work um, when we bought the vineyard. And originally the plan was, you know, maybe do the corporate thing for like five years. Everybody talks about, you know, you open up a, a wine business, a winery, you know, you're going to have this big sucking sound out of your bank account. And yeah, that's probably partially true. Um, I think the rule of thumb is nine years to break even on average for a winery. And I think that is generally true too. So um, we wanted to be thoughtful about how we did that. And so, um, you know, you, we wanted to be able to take stair steps up and be able to digest all that. But um, I thought maybe I'd work for another five years. I didn't do that. Um, I jumped out of the corporate job much quicker after just uh, um, a couple of years. COVID actually helped because I wasn't traveling, I wasn't on a plane. And so my job was on the East Coast. So I would work my East Coast job from, from five in the morning till about two in the afternoon. And as all, we all know out here in Oregon in the summer, it's daylight till 9.30. So from two to 9.30, I could jump out and you know, work in the vineyard um, all afternoon and mid halfway through the evening, which was great. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was a big help. And then the next year, things started to step up for us. Sales took off and um, I knew I needed to just focus on. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had to make a choice, right? Do I really want to put everything into Celestial Hill um, or do I want it to be a hobby? Mm -hmm. And um, that's not what we wanted. Um, you haven't seen me golf, Rich, but my golf game sucks. So um, I'm not a golfer. I've no desire to to uh, lay by the beach. Um, I wanted something. Most I want something we could do for the next 30 years of our life, mm -hmm. and we think this is it. And so we said, let's put the corporate thing away, and uh, let's just focus on the animals and the vines and making great wine and building a great team. And, uh, you know, at some point, I'd love to tell you about my team. I've got a great team, and I, I couldn't do this without them, obviously. Don't worry, that's on the list here. Actually, let's just talk about it now. Tell me, tell me about building a team. Tell me about, well, tell me about from the beginning, um, deciding what kind of wines you wanted to make and figuring out how to make them. Let's start with that. Yeah. So I told you before, we love Pinot and Chard. And so, you know, you can grow some other wonderful, uh, you know, grapes and make some other great wine in the valley. You know, Pinot Gris is great. Riesling is great. Um, we wanted to stay true to kind of our Burgundian passion, uh, Pinot and, and, uh, and Chard. Now we knew we did want to make rosé, um, get something out quick, something that's fun, lighter, attractive price point. Um, so we love rosé and we make two rosés actually. So, which is kind of unique. We make one that's traditional, just stainless steel, six months. So we make another rosé that's six months stainless steel plus a year of oak. So kind of, kind of different. And we do make a sparkling. Sparkling, if you make the traditional method, is a five-year journey. So, you know, our, our uh, sparkling is sitting in, in, in bottles uh, at this point in time and ha has not yet been released. But then the four different vineyards allows us to make multiple Chardonnays and multiple, and multiple Pinots. Different clones, different soils. Um, McMinnville is a, being here in the coast range is a little unique because, um, yes, as elevation changes, the soils change, but we must have also had some earthquakes that have pushed some of the, in the, in the coast range, some of those soils together. So, um, we make some really different Pinots and Shards from across our four different vineyards. Um, but, you know, you could not do this without a, a, a phenomenal team. I mean, there are some people, and there's not many people who are one people bands, like John Thomas, right? And I know you interviewed John not too long ago, and John's a friend, and um, I'm certainly a huge fan. Um, 
Not many like John. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think if you're going to, depending upon your skill set and your passions, what you want to do, it's so important to, to find people that you want to work with. Because it's not, especially when you're this size, you know, I spent my, most of my career doing corporate stuff and you have this separation of, of employees and, and, and your role. And, you know, when you're in the corporate world, you got to be careful of your employees becoming friends because it can cloud your judgment, right? Um, we're not a big corporate here. We are a team that's more like a family. And so, you know, super fortunate to have, you know, the, the first person I hired was Lita Consoli, who has been in the industry for 20 plus years. And she's our director of events and she's worked for some wonderful local wineries, much bigger wineries and, and, and um, super smart, great with people. And so she, she um, has been a massive addition to the family. And then, you know, you got to get the great, great winemakers. And, you know, I've got a great winemaking team with Wynn Peterson Nedry and Elisa Lee. And, you know, Wynn, you know, has her family vineyard up on Ribbon Ridge. And so she works full time for them. And we're fortunate to have her working part time for, for us, bringing just a wealth of knowledge um, and, and passion and growing up here in the valley and knowing the valley as well as anybody. And, and then Elisa Lee works for us full time. Um, which is, um, you know, comes into wine similar to me, different career. She came from a culinary background and but has been making wine for 12 years in the valley. And then you got to have a great, a great team helping you in the, in, in, in the vines. And so, um, you know, I've worked with Chad Vargas um, with NewGen and now part of Atlas Vineyard Management, and they do a fantastic job and they truly are a family. And when you talk about, you know, when, and Elisa and Lida, um, and um, I've got a guy by the name of Jim Bandy who, who helps us out part time as well for, with events, and, um, and 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 Carol Hallahan, and they truly are great, talented people, but they are better people than they are professionals, and uh, we're really lucky to have them. They're just outstanding people, and they truly are family to us. So tell us about, as Celestial began to take shape, uh, obviously you mentioned animals. Tell me about sort of the, the vision for the whole farm, for the vision for the whole site and how that came to be. Yeah, sometimes we really do feel like we're playing Green Acres. It's a little crazy <laughs> here sometimes. And I'm dating myself because most people won't know what the heck Green Acres is. But, um, <clears throat> but that does sometimes feel how we are. We, you know, we've got six dogs. So we've got a passion around dogs and um, four rescue dogs and two are outdoor dogs. You met Bo and Rosie as you and Mackenzie were coming up this morning and uh, they, were, they were feeling pretty proud of themselves as they uh, took out one of our ground squirrels this morning. So they did their job this morning. And um, we said, how do we integrate animals in with what we're doing? So I told you we're, we're all organic. We're a little bit of our own little ecosystem. Um, so the goats, chickens, sheep all have a role on the property. Um, chicken manure is wonderful for the vines. So chickens are playing an active role um, uh, in, in helping with that. The sheep, they, we have nine sheep, so they can't get in, into all 12 and a half acres, soon to be 15 acres planted, but we do let them into the two lower vineyards behind us. So their hooves provide natural aeration, which is great, as well as manure um, into those, the two lower vineyards. Um, we let them in for us, some people do it differently, but we let them in after harvest and then up until bud break. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a lot of brown grass. They love green things. So they will look right over that brown grass and go right for those green vines right now. So they stay out now. And then of course the goats, they help us with the brush around the forest. We have a lot of forest on the property, which we think helps us minimize disease and keeps the, vi the vines, the vineyards healthy. And so, you know, with the threat of wildfires these days, we keep the goats very, very active and helping to maintain the brush. So all the animals play a big part of it. And, you know, we, we really want the vineyard, I mentioned this before, to, to be a place where people feel comfortable. You know, not all tasting rooms are kid friendly. Um, we are here at Celestial Hill for sure. And the kids and adults love the animals. 
So, um, you know, during the springtime before bud break and after harvest and people are sitting out here, the sheep come right up to, to people here on the taste and the tasting room patio and they love to go and pet the, the goats. I mean, who doesn't like baby goats? I tell everybody like dogs are cool. They really, really are. Sheep are cute. They make you smile, but goats just make you laugh. You could be having the worst day of your life. And if you can't go and hang out with a couple of goats and they're climbing all over you and doing silly things and, and you don't laugh, um, I think you might be missing a funny bone or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, um, it's a lot of fun. So the animals are great. And Melissa, who's clearly my better half is, is the chicken whisperer. All the animals, um, all 53 animals currently all have names. They're, they get treated pretty well here. So I'll be honest, um, I cannot keep track of all 22 chickens. Um, I can't keep track of um, all of them. Sheep, goats, I got them nailed, dogs of course, but Melissa actually does. She is able to keep track of all the different chickens and they all have names and so it's fun, right? I and mean, it just brings another element for people to enjoy the land. I think it helps make wine a little bit more approachable for a lot of people, right? Because, you know, no one takes a chicken seriously. So come and, and, and relax, enjoy the land. And I think the animals, they help make better wine. They help make the land more complete, helps make us uh, a little bit more of a live off the property a, a little bit better and just helps welcome people and make people feel more comfortable. So we talked a little bit before the interview about events here. So tell me about when you have events, what is sort of, what is sort of the goal of the events and how have the events you've done so far, how have they gone? Events are awesome. Like, so first time we opened up our, our property to the public, we have two tasting rooms. We have one in Carlton, which is open to the public, no appointment necessary. When you come here to the vineyard, it's by appointment only. Otherwise I'll be in the vines somewhere and not, you know, and you, you won't find anybody, but you make an appointment. I'm ready for you. I get cleaned up. I look semi presentable and um, we have a good time. Then we open up the property to the, public uh, for events, you know, probably two, three times a year. And they tend to have a purpose. Um, I think number one is it's make it easy for people to come. You know, making an appointment is an extra step that people have to think about. Um, but we do some events. The first one we did was, um, was our farm day back in 2022. We released our first Pinots at that event. And we didn't know how many people were gonna show up. We had no clue. It might've just been four people. We didn't know. And um, it turned out Lita, who is our like, you know, our all-star athlete who does everything for us, um, got sick. And so she wasn't able to make it. And um, long story short, you know, we ended up, we had 125 people show up and we were running around with our heads chopped off and it was crazy, but we had a ton of fun. It was a great event and people got to drink some great wine, have fun, the weather was great, but it was really about opening up the property for the first time. Um, so now we do three events open to the public a year. We do the farm day, which you were kind enough to come to this year. We had about 250 people show up this year. It was great, 50 kids running around in the, in the, in the uh, uh, over in the garden with the, with the animals, um, great weather. That's one event. And it's really about br bringing families together and letting uh, families come hang out. Um, simple, just a lot of picnicking going around, enjoying the animals, drinking some, some great wine. Um, so that's really about the families. Um, two, we did, we do a, a rosé and rescue day. So I mentioned we have four rescue dogs. We're big on, on, on dogs as part of Celestial Hill. All of us own dogs. And so Rosé and Rescue Day was a way to raise money for a rescue group called Noah's Haven. And 10% of all proceeds that day went to Noah's Haven. Um, and we brought some dogs out to get adopted. And Hank was one of this dog that we all fell in love with, did get adopted eventually, which was great. And, um, and then the third big event that we do, which is coming up on September 16th, which is an awesome event. We partner with Carlton Observatory and we do a stargazing night. So, you know, Celestial Hill, as you can tell by the name, is kind of star oriented, right? Celestial. And some people ask, well, Chris, how did you come up with the name Celestial? 
Um, I didn't. Melissa did. Credit all credit to, to Melissa. But you know, my last name's Thomas, and so you know, Thomas Wines is taken. Mm -hmm. John beat us to it. So you know, um, then we started thinking about other things. We came up here one night before we bought the property, and honestly, it's like the Milky Way sits right above the house. Mm -hmm. um, we're away from all the light pollution. The stars are great. So we, Melissa said, why don't we call it Celestial Hill? We're sitting on this hill looking at the stars. I said, sold. So as part of having fun and, and, and piggybacking on that celestial theme, we do a stargazing night, bring the Carlton Observatory, some great people who bring their, their super powerful telescopes to bring the, you know, bring the Milky Way and the stars and the constellations closer to us in a more intimate way. So it's, it's a ton of fun. So those are our big events that we do, which I think we'll continue with again next year. So obviously once you have some wine, you have to sell some wine, and obviously you come from a sales background. I'm curious about how wine sales have gone for you and what's different about selling wine than selling other things that you've sold. So um, um, we're very, very lucky. Um, sales are doing great. Um, the, <clears throat> the recognition of um, Celestial Hill is, has grown really nicely over the last few years. In fact, we got our first um, order this morning um, uh, for Europe. So we'll um, shipping our first pallet over to Europe uh, here as we speak, which is great. Congratulations, that's awesome. It's, it's pretty cool, you know. Europe wasn't a market we were focused on. It was just, um, you know, a, a local distributor there in, in Copenhagen and heard about us and wanted to try our wines. and. And uh, now our wines are off to, to, to Europe, which is really, really cool. We don't do a lot of distributor, though, Rich, right? That's not our strategy. Um, we're in Texas. We're now in Europe, thinking, um, looking of, of, of adding Georgia as a market. And then the rest is, is um, in California. And then the rest is really direct to consumer. That's really our focus. And, you know, you talk about selling wine, you know, a lot of people will tell you it's the hardest part of the wine business. There's really three parts. You know, there's the farming, and then there's the wine making, and then there's the selling. And um, I don't know if it's the hardest or not. I, I can see why people would say that for sure. Um, hard to differentiate. Um, there's a lot of wines out there. How do you do that? And I think when you're selling it, um, to a large extent, you're selling yourself. And um, we do think that, you know, it's not just Melissa and myself, but it's Wynn and Lita and Elisa and Jim and Carol and Ryan and Chad and Moises. All of us kind of put our heart and soul into what we're doing here. Um, and I think people, when people spend a lot of money on a bottle of wine, they want to understand it. Um, they want to, like when they open that bottle of wine up three years from now or whenever they open it up, whether it's that night or three years or 10 years from now, um, they want to feel good about who they bought that, that, that wine from. And so I, I think, you know, for us, selling what Celestial Hill is about, we're small, we're authentic, you know, we're, we're, we're easy, we're approachable. Um, I think that has resonated and it's resonated with restaurants um, locally. It's resonated with a few select distributors and um, word has, we, you know, our marketing budget is zero. And I'm not telling you that's the right budget for marketing, by the way, right? I know McKinsey's already offended. I'm going into marketing and, and now you're telling me your marketing budget is zero. And, um, you know, I think our goal, McKenzie, is to increase that budget over time, right? But I think when you start off, um, there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth. Um, and I think the best marketeers would, would like McKinsey, would tell us that. Um, and then you have to be more thoughtful about, you know, picking your markets and doing whatever marketing you want to do. But luckily, Rich, sales have been great for for us. They, they you know, this is now our, our essentially our third year or how you want to start the clock from when we start released our first Pinot from when it was our first Rosé. Our Rosé, <clears throat> first Rosé was um, two years ago. Our first Pinot was a year ago. But every year our sales has more than doubled, which is great. And um, we just, 
we think the sales part is is um, is one of those things that we're we're being pretty lucky with. Mm -hmm. Would love to see. Um, you know, I think there's an opportunity for Oregon um, to do to continue to grow, right? I don't think our Willamette wines or Oregon wines have have saturated. When you think about the what Oregon has to offer from food, cuisine, um, from weather in this for six months out of the year, from the coast, and <clears throat> I think you know Portland, which has historically been a world class city, mm -hmm. and I think right now is is you know on its way back to be to building that world-class reputation um, I think there's a lot for people to come to Oregon mm -hmm. and I think as that all comes together I think um, that will help us sell a lot more wine so you've talked about the timing here and obviously you were you were getting here and starting a business maybe at the worst possible time between a pandemic and and a, and a harvest a year of harvest fires uh, tell me about starting a business when you did what were the, were the unique challenges to you and what what made you feel like you could do it even though those challenges were there yeah i mean you know and 20 was the COVID year and the fire year right so wow if you survived those two um, events, then um, shoot, doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. And you know what? There's truth to that, right? Like, I mean, we are smarter. We are more resilient after that, for sure. COVID was a blessing in disguise. It helped us stay focused on the property. I didn't travel as much, and I mentioned that to you. But listen, we did question, like, oh my gosh, like, are we doing this at the right time? And um, you know, we bought the property then and um, that was our first year and we're like, did we make the right decision? Do we slow things down? And we actually did the opposite. We actually sped things up. Um, we actually made the decision because of COVID. Initially, we thought we would sell some wine and I think uh, sell some fruit. Mm -hmm. And um, we actually recalibrated and said, you know what, we got this is before the fires came. We said, no, you know, with COVID, not knowing how things are going to go, I think people are being very conservative in terms of what they want to do. And um, let's let's go faster. I'm now going to be home more. So it's going to allow us to go faster. Let's take advantage of that. So while the tasting rooms and, and tourism was certainly impacted by COVID, and which was super unfortunate. Again, I do think it made all of Willamette um, more resilient because you learned how to be more efficient. Um, for us, we didn't have anything to sell. So COVID didn't hurt us from a, a tourism perspective. Now the fires became a second thing, right? And we got a little bit lucky. Um, and um, A, did we have smoke? Of course we had smoke. Everybody in the Valley had smoke to my knowledge. Um, but we did have less smoke. So we being in the western part of the valley and the big fire being on the other side of Salem and the other fire being on the other side of Chehala Mountains, we did have less smoke. So we were able to make good wines in, in 20. Um, and you know, hats off, Jay Summers was our winemaker back then and he, he did a really good job of managing through that. You had to be thoughtful. We made wine differently um, and we didn't harvest all of our fruit. We felt like the forest that we have around our four vineyards impacted how the smoke landed in the vineyard. And so we left about half of the fruit hanging. But after doing some micro fermentations, we felt like we had um, low impact fruit in parts of the vineyard. And we made wine from those parts. What was great about that, and here's another blessing in disguise, because we had good 20 wines, um, we did not have to rush our 21s through a process. So we left our 21s in barrel for, for a full 18 months and just bottled our 21s on April 10th of 23 um, and just released them to the market then in June of 23, just two months ago. So, you know, I do think you get smarter, you get nervous, you know, now and you know, it's dry. And um, right now, and you know, here we are, the second half of August, but fires didn't come out in 20 until, until Labor Day. And so you know, you're, you're, until you bring that fruit off the vine, you know, you're never really feeling at, at ease. Um, 
but I do think it makes you smarter. I do think, you know, fires, Rich, are, are, I wish 20 was a one and done. I don't think that's the case. I think it's, you know, it's 20 was the one that we needed to learn from. And now we need to be prepared mm -hmm. if it does happen again. And it will. So you talked about kind of following for the industry uh, and, and, and your kind of initial impressions being positive ones. I'm curious, as you have entered the industry and as you've met more people and started to get your wine in the market, uh, what else have you learned about Oregon wine and, and what, what does the industry look like to you now in 2023? Well, I think the industry's um, is, is different, right? It does, nothing stays the same. It evolves. There's bigger wineries today and there's smaller wineries today. and uh, and. Um, I think we'll have more investment uh, in Oregon going forward, and that'll bring new ideas and new things. And I think that's healthy. Um, I think we learn from others, and that'll just make us all better. So I, I just, you know, since I started coming here over the last nine years, eight, nine years, um, I mean, I've seen, you know, the valley change tremendously. Um, it's getting bigger. Um, new hotels, more tourists, bigger wineries, bigger tasting rooms. You have to stay true to yourself. You know, we're not, we're not going to be building the big tasting rooms here. We're going to be personable. We're going to be small. We're going to be boutique. That's just who we are. You got to be who you are, comfortable with who you are. But I think what I've learned, which I, which I knew, I was always amazed. Like I would go and do a tasting if I was a customer before we lived here. And I was fascinated by vintages. And I'd love to go out and, you know, you talk to winemakers and, and people in the taste rooms and they tell you about the vintage and why that vintage was great and why it mattered. And I was like, you know, I wonder how much truth there is to the vintage and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, like I've been here now four years. 20 was my first year, the year of the fire. 21, uh, as we're sitting right here, it got to 116 degrees, right? So the hottest day ever in Oregon and in Willamette Valley. Then in, in 22, um, we thought we lost our entire crop. We had uh, snow and, and, and a severe frost in April and it killed all of our primary buds. And then who knew, but a month later, the secondary buds came out and we ended up with a, you know, with a big, a pretty big crop dropping a lot of fruit, um, but a very late harvest, harvesting on October 27th, my last Pinot last year. And now this year is the year of the drought. We haven't had any rain since, since April. And so every one of those vintages, you know, you're going to be able to taste that. The vintage matters in Willamette. And when you do, uh, and I, I lean right into that. Um, like, you know, you could blend your vineyards together and try to average some of those things out. We do the exact opposite. We do nine harvests across our 12 and a half acres and play right into it and let the different vineyards, the different vintages really speak. Um, not try to average things out, not try to mask things, you know, um, let that vintage talk to you. You know, I love, right? Like, you know, you know, uh, I wasn't here for 2011, but um, I love drinking 2011 right now. And I love the stories about how 2011, everybody thought it was going to be terrible. You know, how it was going to be a rough vintage and it was too cold, too wet, too this. And you had to be patient and then let the vintage speak. And I think now some of the 2011s that um, I'm drinking, they're just so authentic. You know, the fruit turned out great. It's not covered with oak. It's not covered with, with anything. It's just, it's just a very transparent, authentic wine and vintage that I, that I love. So I think, you know, as you've been here now four years, we've learned, we've learned a lot about those different vintages and, 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 and what Willamette gives you. And, um, I think you have to take what, what, what the, what mother nature and the, uh, and the land give you. And what do you see for what comes next for Oregon wine? Where is the industry headed? Well, listen, there's no mistake. Um, uh, Oregon continues to have, I think, a great reputation. You know, we're not inexpensive. We're inexpensive relative to Burgundy, um, which Burgundies are, are a little bit more, more expensive. Doesn't mean you can't find good values and those aren't 
I'm not saying Burgundy wines aren't fairly priced. There's not a lot of it. Supply and demand drives price, and, and hence, you know, um, those wines tend to be a little bit more pricey. Um, I tell people, it's kind of funny, I was in Burgundy, oh, I guess uh, pre-COVID, I'm going to say it was six years ago, seven years ago. And my interest in Willamette wines was very, very high at the time. And so one of the things I was doing is I know there's a lot of French investment coming into Willamette wines. And I actually went to some of the wineries in Burgundy that had invested in Oregon to understand why they were investing in Oregon. How did it how did it compare to Burgundy? And I loved getting the different perspectives and points of view, but I can tell you, you know, going back eight years ago, um, while there was some respect abroad for what we were doing here, um, compared to I was there in April of this year, Melissa and I were, um, the level of respect and recognition has skyrocketed. That's pretty cool. That's not, hats off to you know all the people bef before me who have worked so hard to um, to build Oregon wines in a very um, credible way. Mm -hmm. You know and what do I mean by credible. I mean I think it's it's not a lot of marketing. It's not a lot of of um, of scale, it's about doing things the right way. Very, very, it's been very, very impressive and it's been recognized. And so now whether it, you're uh, in a restaurant or a wine store in London or in Paris or in Bone or um, Barcelona or, or wherever, point is as, as, as well obviously as the US. Um, I, I, think, I think we should be proud of what we've accomplished, but I think the best is still yet to come. Right? I think there's more investment coming to Oregon. The recognition uh, is there. And I think there's room for expansion. Um, and I do think things will get bigger and better. I think the opportunity goes back to a little bit what I talked about of, of I think that the wine tourism is real. I think people want to spend time in a coast, time in a city, time in a vineyard, out in the country. And I think as Oregon, you know, I had no idea till I lived here how beautiful the Oregon coast was. I had no idea. Um, the coast is beautiful. It's accessible to all. And um, why would you not want to come spend five days a week in Oregon and blend in two, three days of, of wine tasting, mm -hmm. right? So obviously the, the brand is young and still growing and the, and the space as well. So tell me about what comes next. Where are you looking ahead to uh, for Celestial Hill? Where is it going? Um, we feel really good about where we're at, the speed that we're going, Rich. We have some we have some pretty significant plans. You can see to your right, I cleared off this path here in the spring. We'll be adding Vadensville to the Glen Vineyard. So the Glen Vineyard down below us here is, is, sits at 1.4 acres of, of, of all Pomard right now. I'm gonna add Vadensville here to the top. So I cleared that property out in the spring. And then at the top of the property in our Brady Vineyard, I'm gonna almost double the size, that's two and a half acres right now of Dijon um, um, 667. And we're gonna add 115 and 777 up there uh, and double the size of that vineyard. That'll give us 15 acres um, of which uh, 12 and a half will be Pinot, two and a half will be Chardonnay. And then um, behind me on, on my right, your left down at the lowest part of the property, we're hoping to break ground in September on a brand new winery um, and cave so that as we want to continue to do um, really small harvests, um, the fruit doesn't ripen all at one time. We like to get our fruit in early, um, pick just that which is perfectly ripe or, or, or is the type of fruit that we're looking for and just bring that in um, as we want to. So we think moving our winery from Carlton here on site will, will just help us do that. Um, also, you know, it's a little bit of a, a, another experience for our customers coming here. So um, looking to break ground here in September and get the first part done, phase one done, hopefully before the rainy season. Now, if you happen to know when that rainy season's gonna start, I'd appreciate any tips. Um, 
your guess is, I guess, as good as anybody's. We don't know when it's going to start. So um, uh, we'll get that started and then hopefully have a nice big party here uh, next year at this time. And Harvest 24 will be done in the new winery. So we're super excited and stoked for that. So expanding here in the fall, adding another um, two, and a half, two and a half plus acres um, and breaking ground here on a new winery. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, you know, you come back and see me in a year and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not um, like without any hair and, you know, and just like beside myself, like, why am I doing all this at once? But why not? So you know, if you're going to go in, go in with both feet, right? Let's, you know, so we continue to pretty, you know, push pretty hard. But then that's it. Um, we don't see, um, you know, we, we, we are looking at um, um, uh, another location for our, our tasting room. Um, we've got a temporary contract in place, which will be fantastic. I, I won't say where it's at because it's not yet a 100% done deal. Um, which would be great for the community and would be great for Celestial Hill. Um, it's definitely a step forward with a nice investment for the community. And then, and then possibly, you know, um, adding a, a, a second tasting room here also here on the property. But that, that kind of rounds it off. We don't really want to get bigger. We just want to be able to add to the experience. And on a personal level, is there anything else you're looking ahead to? Anything else you're excited about on your horizon? Um, you know, I think personally, um, Melissa and I both really want to just try to get more involved in the community. I think, you know, I think we feel very fortunate. We, 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 we love what we do. We love the people that we do it with. But I think, you know, when you think about living your best lives and a full lives for us, I'm not saying for everybody, um, we really want to try to give back a little bit more to the community. Melissa's done a better job than I have where she's, you know, helping to feed um, um, some of the people who are houseless in, 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 in McMinnville, and she loves that, finds it very rewarding, working with a local dog rescue group here in McMinnville, Noah's Haven, and, and trying to support them. Um, but I think there's opportunities to do more, and I think the wine, you know, listen, the people in Willamette are super generous. The wine industry in Willamette is super generous. And um, we are looking to play maybe a little bit more of a part in that and, and help with that. And, um, you know, and fortunately, you know, the wine industry here in Willamette has been nothing but open arms to us. And so we're looking to take advantage of that. And I think the more that we can do to, to help those who are, uh, are less fortunate, um, yeah, I think it's just a better place. And to this point, what are what is your biggest accomplishment? What are you proudest of? Wine industry or just in general? In general. Um, that's a that's a deep question. Um, Getting very philosophical here at the end. Yeah, you know, listen, I think, um, you know, my father just passed away last month, and um, he was a great he was a great man. He was a simple man. And, you know, I think when you lose a great father, we, we had a simple life, we grew up modestly, but um, had a roof over our head, we were never hungry, and the house was full of love. And, you know, going back to Buffalo for that funeral and seeing how people talked about him and the impact he had on people's lives um, makes a big impression on, I think, anyone. And I think for me, you know, looking back as a father of three, a husband, um, I, I, th I think I feel good about, you know, not just what you do, but kind of how you do it. But I think, um, and so I feel great about that. Um, but I guess, you know, um, there's an opportunity for us to, to always do more. Mm -hmm. And I think there's no time like the present. And so while I'm proud of, of kind of what we've done and how we've done it, and super proud of my three children, Ben, Brady, and Kendall, and they're, they're, they're wonderful people. Um, I think there's, there's an opportunity to be a little bit more present and, um, and, and build deeper roots in the community that 
I hope those two things kind of go together in terms of what's next, what we want to do with the community, and as well as kind of how we, we've chosen to, to live our lives and, and kind of put those two things together. So that's about as philosophical as I can get. So, um, but yeah, but I appreciate you asking the question. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover here today that you would like to cover? No. Excellent. Well, no, that's great. Thank you so much for hosting us on this beautiful day in this beautiful place, sharing your story with us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Well, thank you guys for coming. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.